Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Tomas Struth. The St. Louis Art Museum is set to open Tomas Struth, Nature and Politics, a survey of 35 works Struth has made over the last decade. It opens to members tomorrow, Friday, November 3rd, and to the general public on Monday, that's November 5th. It'll remain on view through January 21st, 2018. The exhibition was co-organized by the Museum Folkwang Essen, Martin Gropius Bau Berlin, and the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, in collaboration with St. Louis, whose installation was organized by Eric Lutz. The exhibition's catalog was published by Mac. Amazon offers it for $41. Tomas Struth is one of the world's most prominent photographers. His work often looks at the construction of places, including most recently places that he describes as being weirdly invisible. His most recent retrospective, Tomas Struth, Photographs 1978-2010, was organized by the Kunstsammlung Nordrhein-Westfalen in his hometown of Dusseldorf, the White Chapel in London, and the Museo Seralvis in Porto, Portugal. His last American retrospective was in 2002-03 at the Dallas Museum of Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and the MCA Chicago. One quick note before we start. In our conversation, Struth and I refer to Peter Bruegel the Elder's painting The Tower of Babel, and we both misremember it as a Hieronymus Bosch. Oops. An image of the picture, along with about 25 other images of art discussed on this week's show, is on manpodcast.com. Tomas Struth for the full hour after the break. See six Pacific Standard Time exhibitions in San Diego for free or reduced admission over Thanksgiving weekend by simply showing an ID with an out-of-San-Diego County zip code. Exhibitions include Art of the Americas, Pre-Columbian Art from Mingay's Collection at the Mingay International Museum, Memories of Underdevelopment, Art and the Decolonial Turn in Latin America, 1960-1985 at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, Point Counterpoint, Contemporary Mexican Photography at the Museum of Photographic Art San Diego, Undocumenta at Oceanside Museum of Art, Modern Masters from Latin America, the Perez Simon Collection at the San Diego Museum of Art, and Xerografia, Copy Art in Brazil 1970-1990 at the University of San Diego. More information at pstlalasandiego.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents The Glamour and Romance of Oscar de la Renta, an exhibition celebrating the illustrious life and career of the renowned fashion designer. Nearly 70 ensembles sourced from de la Renta's corporate and personal archives, the archives of French label Pierre Balmain, private lenders, and the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston are featured. On view through January 28th. Visit mfah.org slash de la renta for more. Celebrate Pacific Standard Time LALA, an ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles, on Saturday, November 11th at 7.30 p.m. Hailing from the colorful La Boca neighborhood of Buenos Aires, Maria Volante and Kevin Carroll Footer of the Blue Tango Project will fill the open-air stage with echoes of tango's forbidden pleasures and the lament of solitary blues soul. Learn about this free event and get tickets at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Thomas Struth, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Good morning. Hello. Let's start with the recent work. You've talked about how in this recent work over the last decade or so, you've been showing us the invisible via pictures of, say, the interior of the Max Planck Institute for Plasma Physics. 
why is it important to you or of interest to you to make seeing the invisible? When you when you say that, that sounds almost a bit you're more dramatic than than it than it really is. I mean, it's factually, it's you. Know, I'm showing a lot of places where where people normally don't have access to. That was not that was not the issue. The initial main point. I mean, like on one side, I think that that everybody, every artist, you want to say something you might believe that their point of view or what they see is not exactly seen in the same way by anybody else because everybody is uh, an individual and has a different context and a different point of view from which they come. So in that respect, it's less dramatic than that sentence sounds. On the other hand, I think that one of my motives is to to show, you know, to 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 consider what I'm photographing as a you know, as a sort of you know, both a cultural and a psychological and a mental you know, and a sociological and political entity. I'm I'm interested in highlighting. You want to scout for location. You're highlighting something that has a summarizing potential or like a prototype or like an example for something and in some of the pictures some of the locations i photographed they represent for me something like your know, entanglement your, your exhaustion or a very big effort or something like that and you know, so what i'm interested in in every your particular photograph is you know, has this kind of emotional quality you're like more maybe than 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 the factual explanation of what you know, to teach people to learn about what they see in the picture when i see some of the pictures in this show and catalog such as the ones in, inside the Planck Institute I think of, of Lewis Baltz and his pictures of surveillance, his pictures of early data centers and his sites of technology work, and of course his pictures of industrial parks, of which he famously said, you don't know what they're doing there if they're manufacturing pantyhose or Megadeth. Is is Baltz, were those pictures of interest to you? Well, I think that you're not as much as you might think. Yeah, I, I know his work, you know, of course, for a very long time, for many decades, but I found them, yeah, I was not so so excited about that. I think there's some some a few pictures that I did early on that have to do with this kind of your invisibility of what what happens in inside of certain buildings because yeah, as you just mentioned, there's a lot of box buildings that 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 can contain anything, and of of course you're from the first. Yeah, the first industrial revolution in the nineteenth century, and yeah, that there was much more visibility of what happened in them or in these constructions. Like, for example, what the Bechers, what Bern and Hill have, have, have photographed. This is much more visibility about what's going on. And then, then we could say there's the age of the box-shaped buildings, but now we're in the age of the internet, where you see almost nothing or we have the, the age of nanotechnology and the genome and it turns it seems that things either shape our lives or, or will more and more shape our lives become 
you're less and less visible in a way. I, I mean, like everybody uses a cell phone, or most of the people use a smartphone, but nobody has has ever been to a server plant or or has really seen seen what keeps it running. There are also lots of landscapes in this show, both of of cities and and non cities. In in preparing to talk with you, I reread Janet Malcolm's 2011 profile of you for The New Yorker, which is kind of a weird piece that is often as much about Malcolm as it is about you. There's a kind of a bit in the piece in which she makes a production out of trying to get you to identify the unifying theory of Thomas Struth, you know, what binds your oeuvre together, in which she's kind of asks you to be both artist and critic of your own work, and I'm not going to do that. But I... I am interested in in something I notice in the landscapes in the current show, whether it's the pictures of a mountain in Disneyland or a picture, uh, actually the first picture in the catalog in the book, a picture of the Seven Brothers Hills in Gangwon-do uh, in, in South Korea. And, and they all show landscapes that were intensely constructed by man. Was that a specific interest and why? Yeah, I mean, I've the, that photograph I... Made in Korea. The, the interesting point there was that during the time, during that time, I, I specifically made a study trip in Korea. I was invited by a gallery, and they came and said, "You would like to invite you to Korea. What would you like to do?" And I, and I thought about it and and said, "I would like to make a, a study trip and look at your big cities." important landscape you want you'd like to visit a big shipyard because i knew that's an important thing in korea i would like to you see a, a manufacturing plant of uh, television screens you know plasma screens so and and they took me to this to this your mountain range in korea that's sort of a well-known landscape and mountain range and when we drove through that valley i, I realized that there were you're walking on the road that goes through that valley and make it more accessible for your four car traffic. You make it more easily accessible. And I thought that was interesting because what they were doing is turning like a landscape that was much more difficult to uh, to access. You know, not so long ago, you turned it into a kind of available picture of a landscape. And it has some as we're talking about it, it makes me think of the the El Capitan picture I made in Yosemite, yeah. Uh, in Yosemite, where I was also my interest in in making that picture at the time was also in comparison to the earlier Carlton Watkins or Ansel Adams photographs. I thought now it's a different age, and that's just this road, and people stop with their cars, get out, make a photograph with their cell phone, get in the car, and and continue their journey which made me wonder about the question of experience, you know, what, what, what real experience versus your abbreviated experience or where the experience in a real your dramatic natural setting becomes strangely similar to any like mediated experience we, we digest and we, we make every day you know, through looking at pictures on the screen or on the telephone and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm interested you know, in this question of, you know, of co- your detachment of experience or your confusing reality with, you know, with artificially formed reality, stuff like that, which I think is an ongoing process. And with the 
a seemingly future distribution of this you know, of the of the virtual reality glasses and and these things you seem to be only at the beginning of a certain process that I find dubious or that makes me worry in a, in a way so I think I never thought about combining these two pictures of El Capitan and that photograph from Korea but that was some of, some of the same interest I want to come back to that El Capitan picture in a minute but but first the picture I think of most when I think of this South Korea mountainscape is the picture you made of the phony Matterhorn in Disneyland in 2013. Is kind of the point or, or the relationship between those two pictures that you want us to find or that interested you was how often landscapes we like and uh, are, are artificially created, are man-impacted? No, that wasn't not really the point. I think for me, the point of Disney going there and with the idea to make some photographs that refer to you, maybe what Disney, Walt Disney had in his mind when he came back from Europe from making a trip to Europe and seeing the Matterhorn and then using that thinking, oh, I can, you know, like we create a Matterhorn and, and turn it into a, a ride or like a Disneyland copy. Yeah, that, that, that to do with your imagination, your memory, and uh, your replica, and it seemed to me that that's compared to today's possibilities with animation, digital animation in movies, such a kind of archaic, yeah, archaic moment from from today's perspective, and and that was the that was the trigger for me to 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 make these photographs I did at, at Disney. I mean, the way I work is is. I'm a contemporary person, you know, I sort of, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, but I'm just a human being who lives, you know, like I share the time with you and with everybody else who lives today. So I'm, I make certain experience, I observe, I have observations that have to do with, with, with the outside that I, I, I notice what, what's happening around me, you know, through me being alive and traveling and meeting people and just you're noticing things, and then and then also have you know, my own personal reactions. You know, what I think, you know, I observe what's happening with me, how I deal with these things. Then I think, okay, what will happen in the future? Where are we going? And what is you? Know, how do I see this? You know, what things you seem to be critical to me in my my opinion, and then I then I try to feed that into in you know, to I try to identify. My reasons to make your work and and sort of you reflect on that or examine these these questions or these phenomena that I that I experience myself and and I think that are experiences and phenomena that are shared by many other people because we live in the same time. Speaking of construction, I was reading through the catalog for a 2010 European retrospective of yours. One of the catalog essayists, Armin Zweit, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, writes about your long-term faithfulness to analog photography in the face of digital manipulation. And he writes this, and it's a slightly long quote, but I, I, I should read it. In your view, you, you being Thomas Struth, you would only lose from, from digital manipulation. This also cuts out the possibility of compiling images from different sources in order to create something new a fictive image in which the correlation to reality is largely unverifiable. 
consequently your own work as you see it, occupies a force field located between passionate commitment and the urge to allow his, your, subject matter to speak for itself. And this may very well mean that in certain circumstances, Struth edits together a sequence of separate shots in order to attain the widest possible angle of vision. And he leaves it open like that. Presumably, I mean, he's writing an essay for a catalog of an exhibition of yours. Presumably, he could have he could have asked you and did not, or chose not, or you or, or you chose not to answer. So I will ask: <laughs> Do you edit together sequences of separate shots in order to make pictures? Well, I I did sometimes. I did, for example, the picture I took almost ten years ago of Space Shuttle Endeavour at Cape Canaveral. That picture is a composition of two of two negatives, but it's a mere yes for a five inch format camera and I just made a a stronger left and right shift of the back here to get this horizontal your more horizontal shot and get more information because it's not then it's not four by five anymore. It's actually four by ten uh, inches. And then I just stitched the two parts together. But it's a kind of a, uh, could have done that also with a bigger wide angle, but the bigger wide angle would have made more distortion in a way from the wide angle lens, and it would have contained less information. Let's say if I would have an eight by ten camera at at the time on on that location, I could have done the same shot with an eight by ten camera on a different lens. But since I had a four by five, so I did that in a couple of occasions. I did one one picture, which is also in that book of the Tokamak uh, Aztecs upgrade uh, plasma experiment interior. There's one horizontal sh- shot of a detail uh, and one vertical of the entire uh, central column of this this in- experiment interior. And that that's a composition of four negatives, where I just made it like a you upshift left, you upshift right, and two at the bottom, and then I, I stitched the, these four negatives together. But that's just a kind of a, a overcoming the, the limits of of uh, cropping. But I usually don't do anything. You yeah, don't like I don't I don't. You make a photograph the place, and then I photograph several different people somewhere else, and 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 put them in that environment. You know, that, that's not so what people do in, you know, let's say in the car, your car advertising, you they photograph the car in the studio, then they photograph a street in the south of France, and the people are photographed in in Belgium, and then everything gets put together. That's not what I do. Bouncing, bouncing back to landscapes, I like to ask something about your photographs of Israel and Palestine, in particular, a 2009 picture of Har Homa in East Jerusalem. It, it's a picture of what most of the world considers an illegal Israeli building project, a settlement project. And there are at least two ways of reading the picture. One is of a constructed landscape of the sort, a man-constructed landscape of the sort we were talking about a moment ago. And another is to read within the picture a very specific engagement with a very specific and contentious politics. Was the politics part of what interested you in the picture, or were you mostly interested in the construction of the landscape? I was interested also in the politics. I mean, I, I, I did this is this settlement. Uh, Hahoma was something I saw very early on my on my first trip when I first arrived in Israel, 
and from from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and I saw it on the side, and and I and there's a certain angle also where it 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 looks like a, a little bit like the bottom of the Tower of Babel, you know, sort of, you know, it has some similarity actually to the Hieronymus Bosch painting, which is at the Kunsthistorische in Vienna. So I I first tried to make a photograph like this, and somehow I never. Then I went. I didn't like the first shots, so I went back another time and another time, another time, and you try try always to get this your perfect shot of this connotation in a way with all the implications of the the Tower of Babel story, and then uh, another time I decided to 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 drive around. You like to to study it from different angles, and the day it started to you to work with the bulldozer to work work on the landscape to expand the settlement, and then I saw that opportunity to you know make a picture that shows a part of the settlement and how the like the landscape, which has a kind of a typical landscape in that in that area that has a kind of a biblical connotation how how the you know, that landscape gets eaten you know, by politics, you know, you, by the political implications. So that was a your conscious decision. As soon as you mentioned the Hieronymus Bosch, it just really clicks into place. It's it's astonishing how much the picture is like the painting. We'll have both next to each other on manpodcast.com. Speaking of painting, you started out as a painter before being nudged to photography. The, the the man who nudged you toward toward photographers was Gerhard Richter when he was teaching. And much has been made, including by you, of your relationship to and with Richter. Richter himself has a particular relationship to, fo- to photography. Most famously, but not quite first, almost first, in the blurred paintings he made from family snapshots in 1964 and 1965, you were only about 10 years old when he made them, so obviously you, you didn't work through them at the moment of creation. But I wonder if those Richters that were about photography and German history and what painting could do and truth and, and were important to you. Well, that's a complex question. I don't think that your Richter's family portraits had any, uh, any influence on, you know, on my work with, fam- with family portraits. That started much later. Uh, that came from a different direction. But you know, I, I, it just happened to be that I, when I was in puberty, when I was 13, 14, and when you you start to think more reflectively, I, I just, yeah, I just had an impulse. I, I felt attracted to art and music, and I think it came partly from, maybe from an from an impulse to look for something you positive. You know, in sort of being a post-war German, with all the in, your confliction and your dealings that, that that were unavoidable, to like to look back in history and and just see what is what is fascinating in the past, and and that for me was art. So I I I just enjoyed looking at your painting and sculpture and and but not photography at the time, and I and I started you know, like to, to draw and then ultimately I started to, you started to paint oil when I was 14 or something like that. And that, that, so when I was, when I came to the academy, 
even though it was 20, I, I, I already painted for five or six years, which at that age is quite a long time. And then when I was at the academy and then had to, the question was in which class to you to enroll, I thought, well, it's best to reach for the biggest challenge, which was Richter. And he was interesting, even though I found it quite scary there in his class because it was very intense in a many respects, but I, I also had the opportunity to work a few times at his studio and it was a very fascinating thing to to see Johann artist works, both with very strong, like the personal emotional investment in his work, but also in a very structured and, and analytic mode, which I'd never encountered before, or I had no idea that an artistic production, you, you, you could be like that. I think maybe I had a more, a more conventional, a romantic idea how your artists work, and not that they, that they also work. You, you're very systematic. I think I was thinking less of those 64, 65 Richters being important to your portraiture than I was thinking of them as maybe being important, possibly being important, as investigations of, of truth, factuality, the past. Maybe another way of, of getting at it is, is, so those are those are pictures, those are paintings made based on blurred family sna snapshots. And I think the greatest of the bunch is, is Richter's picture of his uncle Rudy, who poses in his Wehrmacht uniform. And you have spoken before about your family's own history with that period of, of, of Germany. Your mother was in the Hitler Youth. Your father, like Richter's uncle, was in the Wehrmacht. And you've spoken about how he would talk about that a good bit. Might those Richters, and particularly maybe even the Uncle Rudy picture, have maybe shown you a way that art could address history in the past? It's hard for me to recall when I when I saw these paintings, I think I didn't make that connection at the time because I was. My impression was, as far as I can recall, more that these these kinds of paintings were more like a kind of ironic, had a kind of ironic connection to pop art in in a way, and not so much. Yeah, I mean, when I was studying with him, he what he did, what he painted were were the gray paintings and the color charts paintings and then he also sort of around that time he he started with uh you abstract paintings like he did this big piece of these two gigantically enlarged paintbrush stripes you, you that that were installed in the school there was a commission so he was he was more going towards that abstract phase and that was somehow more important to me that's what i saw i didn't really like these the other photorealistic works, or specifically that that Uncle Rudy painting, it was not so much on my horizon. Uh, I think in retrospect you know, that it's interesting. You know, like many you see, several decades later now, I think there's there's a common you think about amongst the German artists like you Richter's generation and Polke, and then you my generation of artists, you know, including. Thomas Schütte or uh, Reinhard Mucha or uh, other people or even Joseph Beuys before, 
that there's a your common impulse of of your, of of trying to you come out of the past. You was you're something you're consciously critical, but also trying to you transform. You not ignore the past, but try to transform it into something. You're something positive in a way, or something you're like reinventing. You're something without ignorance of you, without ignoring the past. I think that's why there's this this kind of walking and wondering about the your figurative, the, the 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 reinvention of the figure and the question of visibility. What's visible and what do I see in front of me? Is prevalent and is runs through through all these works as much as they're very different in, in comparison when you look at all the, the artistic production in America and the United States you during that period you, this, you see how how extremely different they are one last one last Richter question you and I were both at a symposium at the Museum of Modern Art a few weeks ago that looked at August Saunders pictures of the 20th century you were one of the presenters this year and in talking about portraiture, you said that when making a picture, when talking with sitters, you remind them to breathe so that they don't get too tense, so they don't look too locked up. Do you remember if, and you've spoken a bit over the years over about how valuable but difficult you, you found Richter to be. So slightly cheeky question. Did you tell Gerhard Richter to breathe? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't. No, I mean, yeah, that was, you know, I mean, it's, it's I think it's a funny thing now that you mentioned that because there's two, there's maybe two or three occasions where I've, I've photographed people who know a lot about photography and a lot about portraiture. The first time was when I made this double portrait of, of Giles and Eleanor Robertson in Edinburgh in 1987. While I was photographing them, I realized, wow, they know exactly what we're doing here. And uh, they, you know, so, uh, like, I don't have to tell them anything. And with Richter, he proposed to, to the New York Times that he would like Thomas Struth to make a family portrait for this article they were going to do about his, uh, his upcoming show at MoMA at the time. You were met before, maybe two times. But then when we came to the photograph, he, I think he knew exactly what was happening in a way. And I think about the breathing, I think at that time I didn't, didn't do that yet in general. That somehow happened only a few years later that I realized it might be helpful if I remind people uh, to keep breathing. We're going to come to the Giles Robertson pictures a little later on. My guest is Tomas Struth. We'll be right back after a break. This fall, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Radical Women, Latin American Art 1960-1985, including more than 280 works created by 120 artists and collectives from 15 different countries, the exhibition highlights the contributions of Latin American, Latina, and Chicana women to contemporary art. Radical Women is part of Pacific Standard Time LALA, an initiative of the Getty with arts institutions across Southern California, exploring Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. Radical Women, Latin American Art 1960-1985 on view September 15th 
to December 31st at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents The Medici's Painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash dolci for more. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view through March 3rd is Living Proof, Drawing in 19th Century Japan, exploring the methods, techniques, and subjects of drawings during Japan's Edo and Meiji periods. Originally created as the primary step in making ukoye prints, drawings of the type exhibited were often discarded or destroyed through the process of printing, with more than 70 of these rare works on display, Living Proof bears witness to the working practices of some of the most celebrated print artists of the era, including Hokusai, Kuniyoshi, and Yoshitoshi. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Thomas Struth. Before we leave... Germany and German history. The great, really memorable thing you said in that Janet Malcolm New Yorker profile was that if you want to know what formed me, this is the big thing, the culture of guilt that I was born into and that surrounded me in my childhood, which was interesting because I'm not sure there are specific pictures where I can identify that in your oeuvre. Are, are there specific pictures that are about the culture of guilt into which you were born? I don't think so. I think that it's a general a question of a general attitude. You know, what I'm addressing, you know, that I, that I, for example, I think that that the fact that the first body of work that I that I've worked on for many many years was the public realm of the street or the the, the urban environment certainly came from the fact that I grew up in a in a in Düsseldorf and Cologne. Both cities were very destroyed during the war. So. I grew up in this patchwork of interrupted and completely unhomogeneous uh, urban environment, which just was you know, really formative for me as a as a human being. So to to have an aware, like to have an you to acknowledge that or have an awareness that that matters a lot, and it it, it forms us, it informs the citizens who grow up in an environment like that, and and what 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 urban environment does to people who live in it, you know, was certainly one of the one of the reactions to that. But it's not so specific in in uh, you know, in any any specific picture. Well speaking of, of the early days in your work, as we've talked around with maybe not exactly talking about, as a photography student you studied with the Beshers. And you first present, as a student, you first presented or installed your work in a grid, and you quite quickly moved away from that. By the time you 
spent some time in New York City in the late 1970s. So far as I know, you stopped installing on a grid, and so far as I know, you've never done it since. Did you become suspicious of or wary of or dismissive of the grid, both as an installation method and maybe even as an organizing principle for cities? Yeah, that's an interesting thing. It's a bit uh, hard to believe, but I, you know, I did. The, I started to follow our streets. You know, this central perspective views at the time with a 35 millimeter camera when I was still a student of Gerd Richter, and then I decided to make a grid. I just had this idea: I make 49, I make 49 street pictures and and put them in a grid, you seven by seven. But at the time, I had no. I mean, I, I, I think the only thing I knew, not the only thing, but I, I didn't know the Bechers. I'd never heard their name. I never saw their work at that time. I, I, I had bought a couple of books of uh, Ed Rocher in in Cologne at Walter Koenig Bookshop, bookstore, but I didn't know anything about Ajay or any of the big figures in photography. And when I then when I started, when I switched and, and joined with Bernd Becher, became a student, and he introduced me to a large format camera. Then I, I, I began to look at the individual pictures better because the, the 49 streets I did first, it didn't really matter to me whether each one of them was a good picture or not. It was, was merely like a conceptual idea. And then when I realized, oh, there's, you hear like nine pictures, but these two are better than the other seven, then I, then I thought, well, the grid it was immediately dropped. Even though I sometimes did installations with two rows of pictures, you know, like, like, like five and five. So there's, it's not a grid, but it's two rows, you know, one on top of each other, which had to do with, how perception works and when you look at one picture and you have like two or three or four pictures around it you, you then the picture you're looking at works differently so i i i think once i started to photograph and you know and and made my experiences with photography in the beginning it had a lot to do with you how does perception work and how does how does installation how, how do installations of photographic pictures work what do they do? And and I and that was, you know, I'm still you're very fascinated by that, and it's you know that has an amazing importance. For example, here right now in St. Louis, with installing the 39 photographs of this exhibition, you know, I worked you know, two full days just having you know, the works, part of the works on wheels, like on particular devices, so that I can that I can move them around quite quickly and test many different combinations to see how how every work resonates or shines the best. So I think that started at that time. You know, it was also, when I was at the, at the academy, I I gave a paper on, on, a, on a book about Wolfgang Köhler, who was a 20s and 30s Gestalt theorist that talked a lot about that you cannot you, you cannot see anything uh, isolated. You know all the, all the things you ever look at, you, you ever see, are in context with other things around them. And I I found that uh, yeah, very fascinating, and that was a big lesson 
for me that I never that you expand it more and more and played a from then on played a big role in my in my practice. You know, those cityscape pictures from the late 70s and and a little bit later whether they're in Germany or in the United States, they are all single point perspective pictures more or less taken from the middle of a street. It, it, it's not necessarily something that would necessarily jump off of a wall, but when when going through a book of your pictures, it begins to feel almost foundational. So I'm assuming single point perspective and not using, say, dual point perspective in any of the pictures was a conscious decision. Why? When I look at it from now, I feel I, I think what what happened is that that I had the desire to to do something you're less emotional or that had to do just something with a more analytic system in a way to, to apply you know, to, to to apply your systematic strategy on something that is you know that is emo that is that's potentially emotionally you're quite charged you to deal with it or you to sort of to you make things through that system you're you're better visible then changing the perspective every time. One of my favorites of your urban cityscapes is a picture you made of downtown Dallas in 2001. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. It's a, it's a picture that shows time passing through, through different building styles. It hints at a relationship with cubist painting. It hints at an urban street grid. I mean, it, 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 it's a really loaded picture. I know you were working with the Dallas Museum of Art, among other museums, on, on a retrospective of your work when you made that picture. But do you remember what about that particular view from that particular parking lot appealed to you? Yeah, no, I'm 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 just now smiling and I'm very pleased that you mentioned that picture. <laughs> Thank you I so love much. That one. Yeah, no, me too. I love that one too. No, it's it's really exactly what you're saying. I mean, there's not much else to. I mean, there's a few more things to say about that, but but I think that's I'm I'm very pleased that you identify exactly what I well why the reasons why I made that picture. When I was in da- Dallas, I just spent some time there in downtown. Dallas is not very big. I had a car, a rental car, so I, 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 you know, I, I, I drove around and you tried to find a summary of what you, what I saw. So then I, I thought, yeah, maybe I need to go high up. And there are kind of a number of parking lots in, in, in downtown Dallas. So I decided, okay, I'm going to just drive into a few of those parking lots and drive all the way up and see see how I can get a different perspective on these buildings somebody had told me that two or three of those big towers were were empty he had no tenants at the time because the yeah, they didn't the the, the way the, the offices inside were wired you didn't didn't fit with today's computer technology or something like that and when i when i came on when i arrived at the top of that parking lot where i made the picture yeah, I was just struck by the by the potential of making that picture of the different. I'm, I wouldn't say the. I'm, I'm never interested really in building style. I'm, I'm interested in what the buildings suggest as a yeah, as an attitude, you know, or as a mentality, and what they tell about its history and its 
relationship to the human body. And then because of that picture, the surface of the parking lot it was fairly empty, a bit wet. I think there's some 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 puddles maybe from rain and there's only two or three cars. It, it made this interesting cut into the so you don't see the the street surface from you know at the bottom of the buildings. Yeah, and I just found that a very striking composition yeah, as a montage. As you just mentioned before, the cubist element in it, and you, which I I never really consciously realized that that's that that's a connotation that I that by impulse I might have been fascinated by. But I'm I'm just very pleased that I I, I love that picture. So it's, I mean, it's, it, yeah, that's a good example. Uh, like the way one can see this, my my work has a lot to do with location sc- scouting, or which was looking at many things and then just evaluating them and saying no, 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 no to many places. And then when I see something that I try, that I find interesting, you're asking why is it interesting and yeah, and then and then thinking, shall I shall I make the effort of setting the camera up or not? Yeah, and then then sometimes I I stand there and think for a long time, is that is that worth it or so? And it's and it's that has a lot to do with your large format and tripod and the time it takes or so. Yeah, that one was worth it. The architectural history, the art history, the picture, what it says or suggests about about the urban grid every i mean that's yeah that's a really great one (laughs) in looking at your cityscapes especially in black and white but also in color there are almost no trees is that an intentional decision or is that just what you tended to find in the built environment and over the years that just kind of has ended up what's there i never thought about that actually but you know when you ask me this i think that's just because I'm interested in the building environment and not, yeah, I'm never, yeah, I'm not really interested in city landscape uh, or so and the trees. You by and large, you would hide some of the architecture. So I'm, I'm, that's the thing that's just happened by, by intuition and not, you yeah, not really by, I, I was never, I was never aware of it about that actually you mentioned a moment ago scouting pictures and so taking that idea and transitioning into your museum pictures quite a number of them feature paintings in which the subject of the painting stares right out of the picture plane in a way that his or her eyes follow us wherever we move so there's the durer self-portrait in munich the rembrandt in vienna the velasquez at the prado and in a more architecturally enabled way, if you will, the Bellini in San Zaccaria in Venice. Were you particularly or specifically interested in in the way the eyes of the sitters in those pictures follow a viewer? And was that why you seized on those four or five pictures? Well, I think that, that I wasn't particularly aware about that, except for the Dürer, the, the photograph I made with the Dürer, which belongs to like a small group of just three pictures Museum photographs are made in in around the millennium, changed in 99, 2000, 2001. In a moment when bef- before that, I actually thought that's that body of work is finished, and and the Dürer photograph is you read a lot about 
the way in which Dürer looks at us, looks at the beholder, you're out of the painting, which I find very, very interesting because of this your calm and and an almost unintentional gaze. I mean, he's it's very it's very quiet. It's not very vain or anything like that. I mean, I know that art historians you tend to say it seems to me the common interpretation of that painting is that Dürer depicts himself as yes God, yes Jesus in a way because of the hand and and the, the long hair and stuff like that. But I I you know, I never bought that interpretation so much, and I was more fascinated by the gaze you know, and its and its psychological quality. Which of course came from yeah had its origin in the fact of my own you're making portraits and you're noticing that when you when I wait for the, like the right quote moment when to press the, the, the shutter release that that I want people to be present like psychologically psychologically present in the room and not you absent-minded and I I I know that this your presence is not you're continuous, you know, I mean, and you know that from your own, own experience, like the emotional quality of, 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 of being or existing is a very, it's a very unsteady curve all the time, except maybe when you, you do meditation, but even when you meditate and you, you, you sit quietly, then your mind, you know, keeps rolling and it's, you know, it's not an easy task to, you're quite your imagination down in a certain way and because I, I, I noticed this fascinated me I, I did these one hour video portraits I think the first one was in 96 or 97 then I did in total 11 of them where people look into the camera for one hour and during that time I revisited the Dürer painting in Munich and all of a sudden I thought well here's the problem or here's this phenomenon of a, of a gaze that seemed to to me to be you unintentional but also quite firm in a mellow way it's about I, I just was really struck by by this you know and when you compare the Dürer self-portrait you this one with other portraits or other self-portraits let's let's say the Beckman here at the St. Louis Art Museum or your law or any other portraits your Titian or you know in the, the entire painting history you most of them or the majority the vast majority of these paintings or the people who are depicted in these paintings have a you're kind of cited or your characteristic in the psychological moment that that the, 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 these people are, individuals are being represented and the Dürer has a very particular calm you know, slightly firm but sort of un, yeah, undirected quality and I think that's very extraordinary and of course in the way I made the picture yeah at first when I was first noticed that I thought oh I, I have to I want to make a photograph so I had a, like a 35 millimeter camera with me and I, and I took some photographs of yeah, yeah I started to photograph just make some notes of people who are walking by and they're looking at the Dürer and then I felt like no I'm I'm yeah, I'm imitating myself. I'm copying you know, what I did, uh, what I'd been doing a few years before. And then just spontaneously, I thought I'm going to put myself in front of the thing and just put a self-timer and 
put the camera on on the on the bed on the on the bench behind me and and made a snapshot and then I thought oh I want to uh, yeah I want to make a, a real work out of this and I went back like four weeks later to do that and it's a, it's almost like it's a little bit like a movie scene you know somebody's looking into looking you past the person he's talking to which is me at was in my photograph, you know, in, into somebody past the person he's in conversation with to the viewer of my photograph. So it's an interesting thing with painting photography and film in this photograph. So far as I know, it's the only place in your entire oeuvre in which your physical person is is in a picture you make. There's, yeah, that's there's, true. There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a picture of you in a shadow we'll come to in a moment. You could have put yourself in any form, just an arm or the back of your head or anything, in any of the museum pictures. Why were you willing to be or, or wanting to be in this one? Yeah, that's <laughs> there was a spontaneous impulse at, at the moment. But when I look at, you know, like a few years later or you know, over time, I realized somehow there was I was... Yeah, I was born in 1954, so in 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 I think that's 2000. So I was like 40, 45 years old, and I think during that time, I sort of somehow began to you to come to terms with the fact that I'm German. Yeah, and it's not I've never been a Dürer fan or something like that, but there was something in that moment towards the millennium, yeah, the paintings from 1500. It was 2000, and you know, I've, it was 45, and that uh, in that moment I didn't you know, that that didn't occur to me. But because the question you just asked me, uh, you know, that sort of lingered on for myself, or people asked me that, and then it seemed to become somehow it came out of the fog, you know, of this, just merely being an impulse that I felt. Well, I think that's because at this. At that time, I thought, well, I'm yeah, I'm German. Yeah, I was born after the war. You know, it's sort of, you know, it's just not that I continuously before that always felt embarrassed to be German or, you know, or that I felt a personal guilt. But I think, what, what at least for me personally, I I I think, if from today's point of view, I feel. That something was going on with that, you know, that our parents' generation. You have never heard anybody you apologizing you for for something that you cannot really apologize for because of the dimension of what what has happened. But but you maybe you can, you know, you can, you. But but our parents' generation, you know, they never then they sort of they couldn't maybe in the face of th those dimensions they couldn't say I'm we're sorry or. You know, I'm sorry. So I, f I feel that that was kind of landed in in my lap or in our lap. I think that's been that's something that's been lingering on in my life. The other picture of yours in which there's a sort of self-portrait, it's just you and your camera and a shadow, and it's a picture of Oslo in the wintertime. Your shadow lands on the snow. As far as I know, and there's always possibly stuff I don't know, of course, it's the only time in your entire oeuvre that you do that. Why did you include yourself in that picture? Why there? Yeah, I mean, that was a funny 
thing or that's, that's interesting yeah this is a this is a, a place like a, an area nearby oslo it's maybe 50 miles south of oslo it's in a place called drammen that's where where edward monk uh, had his summer house where in his studio where, where he painted where he did all, some kind of famous paintings and i went there to see that yeah, to see monk's house in the winter time and i noticed these these greenhouses where cucumbers and tomatoes are being grown in the winter with this very uh, strong light. And I thought this was a very particular picture of modernity and absurd reality of our time in a way that in the winter in Norway with 20 degree uh, minus Celsius, they grow vegetables. And so I I went back to make that photograph and and I I thought this, my shadow with the camera in the in the snow it was a f- kind of funny connotation to the 19th century you know and uh, and uh, and introduced it was kind of a joke in the way photographers in the 19th century often included shadows in themselves in their pictures often in yeah, the same place in the lower some, left some some in my in the back of my brain my archival storage of pictures you know, the, the, which is quite a strong archive my guest is Tomas Struth. We'll be right back after a break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents The Medici's Painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash dolci for more. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by The Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside L.A. at the Wex. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity, and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more, and it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the Wex Galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. Experience Tom Sachs' Tea Ceremony, a new perspective on the traditional ceremony combining the artist's longtime interests, branding, Americana, space travel, and everyday manufactured materials. On view now at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 7th. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. And now back to my conversation with Tomas Struth. A little earlier, you mentioned your 1987 picture of the art historian Giles Robertson and um, a picture you made at the same time, more or less, of, of, of Robertson and his wife, Eleanor. 
Robertson was a Scottish art historian, the son of a classics professor and an historian of the Italian Renaissance, known especially for his work on Bellini and Catena. 1987, how did you come to meet him? I met him through a, through a friend of mine from Düsseldorf, uh, Michel Sauer, who's a sculptor and, and painter, who was, uh, was good friends with Alan Johnston, who's a Scottish artist who's maybe uh, five or six years older than me. And I went together with Michel to Edinburgh and met Robert Robertson's, uh, Robertson, who's a, who's one of the, the sons of of Eleanor and Charles. And he he was an interesting kind of odd person. Uh, I I decided I was wondering whether it would be interesting to make a portrait of Robert, and I did. And he had just moved out of his parents' house, and I thought for you know that's an interesting moment. So I. I thought I suggested let's do one portrait of you in in your new apartment, which was quite empty at the time, and and, a, and another one at your parents' house, where you just moved out because for psychological reasons, I I thought it might be interesting to cook you to find out you know, how he would behave in both these locations. So when we came to his parents' house, I met Eleanor and Charles as they were just sitting at lunch at this table that where I photographed them two years later and I was very struck by their you know, by their presence and by this environment that was such an authentic seemingly you know, and, and really authentic relationship with with their countries and with their nation's history and with their culture that I asked them can I just suggest that you can I make a portrait of you so you had two years between meeting them and making the picture yeah, to, yeah, to think about yeah, wanting yeah. to do that do you remember? What in those two years kind of motivated you to want to make that picture? I mean, two years is a good amount of time to get to think about that. I think that happened quite quickly. I mean, when I, when I, after I met them, I thought, wow, they are very outstanding people. And then when I got back from, from Edinburgh from that trip in 85, I decided, yeah, I'm going to write them a letter and ask them. So I, I, said, I put a few contact sheets uh, of... of uh, portraits I, I just made like before in the last two or three years before that into an envelope and I wrote them a letter you know, saying you know, I you know, was a pleasure to meet you and I've been thinking you know, I, that I would be interested in making a portrait of you so I sent them the letter and you know, like sh- shortly afterwards I received a, uh, your letter from Giles saying we would be very pleased if you, you would take our portrait and also, I should add that that Robert had you mentioned that you, during the first trip that he we started to talk about this, and he and he said it would be great if I would make a photo of his parents. I think because he somehow sensed that Giles, his father, would maybe not live uh, so long anymore, even though he was only seven. I think he was seventy-one or seventy-two at the time, but he. He, he seemed to me when I met them first that I I thought he might you know, this man he must be like in his late 80s or so because he was he was even though he had a very juvenile spirit he seemed he seemed physically a bit he seemed to me much older than than he actually was and indeed after I made the portrait he passed away less than a year later. This is like the Dallas picture a photograph almost impossibly rich with layers and references to both history and art history. 
we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Robertson is sitting at a table, a, a table made of wood panels, and he's a, a, an historian of Renaissance art, and particularly of the moment when painting moves off of panel and begins to move onto canvas. Behind him are, are several paintings, at least one of which I'm pretty sure is, is on canvas. And your picture places him between at this table, between paintings, and between a book, placing an historian between his subject and perhaps his work. Did you build all that and direct that picture yourself, or was it a more organic, a more organic morning? <laughs> well, it was a that 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 was a that's a longer story in a way because like what happened at that time when I came back to Edinburgh to make the picture. You're Susan Johnston, Ellen's wife. You're Susan and Ellen. You know, I was there for a week or so, and Susan and Johnson and then Ellen said, "Let's you know, we will you will invite everybody you to dinner. I think Friday night or so. So so Robert, Eleanor, and Giles came, and my girlfriend at the time, and we we all had dinner together. During the whole evening, we ate and drank a lot of wine and whiskey or so, and nobody spoke about the portrait." that we were going to do the next day. And I didn't address it because, uh, you know, I was, I was much younger. I was, I, I felt a bit shy and so forth. So then at the end of the dinner, Ella said, why don't you come everybody tomorrow to ours for lunch? And we, we still didn't talk about the picture. So, okay, it was a great idea. So everybody got together at lunch at this table where I, I made the picture the next day and we all had lunch at this table. And then at the end of the lunch, somebody suggested, okay, let's let's leave the three of them alone and we and, and the rest of the party just goes for a walk. So it happened and then we were sitting there and I, and, and more or less we stayed just in this location and it was almost like a, it was almost like a sleepwalking situation that, both Eleanor and George kept sitting there, and they were maybe a bit you're tired you're, uh, after the lunch, but were very aware of of the situation. And I was very nervous because I had to deal with the five by seven camera, and you find the right your right angle. But I'm I have a quick eye, so yeah, I sort of I and I uh, set up the camera, and I think that they were very you're very. I would say mildly, mildly but strongly conscious of 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 the opportunity of the moment, in a way. So, yes, yeah, at the, the camera, I, yeah, I I put the focus. I had to tilt. I had to swing the lens a bit you know, to to get the, the the focal plane you know, between the two people with a, a different distance to the lens to make sure that they're in focus because I I never use any artificial light. So the exposure was maybe like a second or something like that. And I just made like three or four shots. You know, second one of which, you know, not the one that I used, there was another one you know, where Giles also looks into the camera and he like he turns around his he turns his head around and smiles at the camera. When I was back in Germany I had the contact sheets, I sent them a set of the contacts and thinking, you know, I liked the picture better that I that I used in the end. But I, I was I I asked them which one do you like the best and so I was you curious if he would maybe like the one where he smiles into the camera better but then he agreed like he said no I like that one 
you better ways more kind of pensively you're looking down and i've and i've i was found that very interesting because then in retrospect the fact that he that he passed away you're not so much your time uh, after that I, I felt that he that for him that was more like an inward looking your gesture expression of you being with himself and just looking down and you being aware of and not not having you to reach out by smiling at the camera so that he recognized it as a kind of life summary picture yeah something like that yeah yeah it was very i mean it's it was i think that was a for in my life a very particular gift yeah uh, to have met them and and having you sort of kind of a you kind of mutual understanding or acknowledgement of of your you of you knowing something about life or some even from very different age and very different cultural direction it was very very special we spoke briefly earlier of the picture you took of el capitan in yosemite in 1999 that's a picture that is in your places of worship body of work that body of work is otherwise mostly or almost entirely pictures made in churches why include yosemite and el capitan in places of worship yeah <laughs> this type of places of Places of worship it was not my title or my category that came up during the preparation of the of of this exhibition tour and the long conversations I had for this back matter in the in in the catalog that I did with with uh, Tobias Betzler and James Lingwood and I think that places of worship was a category that James Lingwood uh, introduced and I thought somebody makes. It made sense, and it, and in particular about this El Capitan picture, I I was willing to integrate. You know, like to to put that uh, under that category because yeah, because of this your transition of what your well-known famous landscapes mean for photography. Or, or you cannot say for photography because your photography itself is nothing. You the, the, the photography is only what humans do with it, or what it means for for for, for us. So, in, in a way, our landscape or pictures of landscape, and then the confrontation with the real landscape, which people know through pictures. You know, this whole problem of phenomenon. You know how how what that encompasses. I mean, this this is what this is relatively vague statement I'm making here. But I think there's a larger connotation in terms of your visibilities of things through through photography and and you accumulating knowledge, you like seeming you seeming knowledge about something that that you one hasn't actually really seen your experience as a with your own body or your own presence, but simply through 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 photographs or your your moving image. And, and of course, photography made and informed the world about Yosemite, you know, decades before most people could go there. I'm, I'm a Carlton Watkins guy, so I have to ask this, this next question. Your picture in 1999, obviously taken with different technology, particularly different lens technology than was available in the 1860s, is taken from almost the exact same place as Carlton Watkins's picture of El Capitan in 1861. There are even two trees in your picture on the left-hand side. 
that are pretty much exactly where Watkins put two trees. Were you conscious of making that picture from the same place he made it? No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I mean, for, for, for the, the, I, of course, I, I, I like I, I cannot remember because I saw, you know, I'd seen you know, several f- photographs that were made during your photography's history of El Capitan and Yosemite, but I, I cannot recall really specifically whether I'd seen the, the, the Cotton or Watkins photograph, but what was, was clearly on my mind is something like the difference between your first encounters of your photographers or, or the explorers who, who, were, who made photographs of the American West in the 19th century or in the first half of the 20th century, and now, where you were, were even when I when I made the photograph during that time, which you you cannot see in my picture, but there were people you're climbing up the, the mountain, and I you noticed that actually people who can't make it in one day they sleep in a hammock. You're in the mountain. You're on that on that yeah rock face, and it's which then has to do with all the mountain climbing equipment thing and tourism and all these uh, things and this accessibility you know, of nature you know, or dramatic nature, so to speak. I noticed that in, num- in a number of your cityscapes, there are playgrounds in the foregrounds of the pictures. Two examples, Okerstrasse, uh, Leverkusen from 1980, and your pictures of South Lake Street, particularly South Lake Street 2. Is there is, is that just coincidence that there happened to be playgrounds in front of you know a number of the buildings you photographed, or was that something? Is that something that specific in, specifically interested you? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, that actually reminds me of the fact that I when I was in Pyongyang in uh, for a week in North Korea ten years ago that I that I tried to I made a picture of a, of a playground in front of apartment blocks but unfortunately the, the, the negative I made something wrong with the exposure time so it didn't it didn't work out I think that is I didn't I wasn't particularly conscious of this but I remember when I did this photograph in Chicago of the uh, of the South State Street apartments that I I made made that picture from the roof of a, a public school that was across the street I was very aware about the fact that these apartments were famous or notorious for crime and 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 and, and very problematic uh, social environment, environment or very problematic for its inhabitants, and that there was a playground in the middle where even there some some kids in my picture was a yeah a dramatic connotation. You're thinking about the beginning of the life of kids' life and you yeah, and all the opportunities or the openness of what would what happens in every in anybody's life like that begins with childhood it was a specific a component of the picture so the passage of time kind of like in the dallas picture yeah but in starting a different way yeah exactly like starting point of life is on the playground your kids are you know you are innocent you know then they're not responsible for what what they're what they're doing and they hopefully all the all the opportunities that that they should have Finally, the last picture in the catalog for, for nature and politics, I mean the very last page, so just before the cover, is a picture of rocks and ocean off the South Korean coast. And I'm guessing you had some input into that. 
Why, why that for the last page? <sighs> that was, that happened because we, we decided, yeah, before we had decided to put that photograph on the cover, which came from, from the first time, the first time I showed this body of work uh, about uh, technology and all the, all the questions around it was a show that I did at Marion Goodman in New York in 2010, I think. And I built some walls in the gallery spaces so that people would not see too many pictures at the same time, that each time they turned around, they saw a different picture and a little different surprise. But uh, the first picture I saw as you came out of the elevator was this seascape from South Korea with the rocks. And it, and it for me, that was a, it's a picture that talks about the planet, your liquid, your air, gas, and firm material, and it's and and I found it quite a, a dramatic scenery because the the, the ocean is agitated, the, the sky is, is you're not so tumultuous, but it's it's you know it's not a blue sky, and the rocks, you know, the black rocks seem to like fly, you fly in your face almost when you look at the picture. So so that was kind of an opening act saying here's the globe, here's the planet, and that's you know, that's part of what we're making now in the contemporary world. So that was the decision to put it on the cover. And as we're working on the book for for a while and 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 then all, all of a sudden my assistant said to me, but the picture's not in the book. <laughs> and I thought, oh shit <laughs> We totally passed out on that. <laughs> so we said we cannot change the order in the book. You know, so, so and then it said, okay, where is there any any possibility you trust where to put it? And then then we realized, well, the only way, the only place that we can still put it is at the very end. And I said, why not? Let let's just put it put it as an exit. It's it's on the cover, and it's the last picture in the book. So thankfully, sometimes my assistants will alert me to something that I overlook. <laughs> <laughs> that is completely great. Well, Tomas Struth, thanks so much for the work, and thanks very, very much for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.